Good morning, everybody. It's, it feels good to have my mask off. When I sing, I can't. I have to have it on, right? But when I preach, <laughs> um, good morning to you. My name is Carrie Smith. If, if you're new here, I'm one of the pastors at Freedom Village, um, and I'm excited to be able to share with you this morning. Um, we just celebrated Easter, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to focus on one of Jesus's other titles, Um, which John the Baptist declared in the Gospels, and it is the Lamb of God. So who is the Lamb of God? Well, I've kind of just already answered this question, haven't I? So uh, uh, maybe a better question is, why is Jesus called the Lamb of God? So to answer this question, we need to first look at the Old Testament and ask another question, what is the history of, and the significance of lambs, or more specifically, of sacrifices and offerings in the Old Testament. Lambs are mentioned 96 times in the Old Testament, and 85 of those times have to do with sacrifice. Lambs were sacrificed every morning and every evening of every day in the temple in Jerusalem. And at Passover, you were expected to bring a lamb or lambs, depending on the size of your family, um, to the temple to be sacrificed. So for hundreds of years at Passover, Jewish people brought lambs to the temple to be sacrificed for their sins. And one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament that involves a lamb being sacrificed is in Genesis 22. Check one. There we go. I'm sure you know the story of Abraham and Isaac. And at the beginning of Genesis 22, God speaks to Abraham. In verse 1, it says, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So why in the world would God tell Abraham to kill his son? This is Isaac. This is the son that God had promised that he would make a great nation from. This is the the son that God had promised to Abraham in his old age. How could God ask Abraham to do that? Well, verse 1 actually tells us why. It says, God tested Abraham. And, that, and, and it says, so it was a test. It, was, it, it seems maybe like a cruel test, but honestly, when we start digging a little bit deeper, we realize that, yes, it was a serious and seemingly severe ask, but God knew that Abraham knew that after all of this was over, Isaac would live. How can we know that? How do we know that Abraham thought that? Well, because Hebrews 11 tells us that. And beginning in verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, 
from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believes God. Abraham trusts God. He knows that God has made this promise to him and that he would give him a son and make a great nation from his son. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham had faith that God would keep that promise. God will keep his promise and make a way, and God did make a way. He provided a sheep caught in a bush a few meters away, and that was the substitute, that was the sacrifice. A few verses earlier, Isaac had actually asked his father, Father, where is the sacrifice? We're going up this mountain, but we don't have a sacrifice with us. And Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. One commentator says this, when Isaac said, where is the lamb? He asked one of the most important questions in history. And when Abraham answered Isaac's question, he provided one of the most important answers in history. God would provide a lamb. And John the Baptist identified him 2,000 years later when he said, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Another interesting detail is that the sacrifice that Abraham made is on Mount Moriah. We're told in 2 Chronicles 3 that this is where the temple was later built. God calls Abraham to make a sacrifice on the spot where he would later dwell with his people and where many other sacrifices would be offered for the sins of the Jewish people. Another significant event involving the sacrifice of lambs is the Passover. This is another familiar story that if you grew up in church, you probably heard in Sunday school as a child. Just to briefly summarize, God has asked Moses to, uh, God has told Moses to go ask Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh refuses. God sends nine plagues, and Pharaoh still refuses. Before the tenth fl- plague, um, the Jewish people are commanded to sacrifice a lamb per family and to paint their door frames with the blood of this lamb. And then they're also told to eat that lamb in a very specific way. Um, If you've forgotten this story or you want to read it again, you can do that in Exodus 11, 12. So what happens next? God was about to enact the last plague, killing all the firstborn in Egypt, but he would pass over the houses that were marked with the blood of the lamb. This is one of the most significant events in the history of Israel. God not only freed them from slavery to Egypt, but he spared them from his judgment. And so you see, when Jesus is called the Lamb of God, that's where God, through John the Baptist, was trying to point the Jewish people, the sacrifice that redeems us. The Passover was such an integral part of their culture. And everyone knew the significance of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Lambs were a huge part of their culture as well. Sheep weren't just raised as food. They were raised because they were animals needed for sacrifice. And yes, other animals were sacrificed as well. But predominantly, most of the time, it was lambs. 
And I already mentioned that lambs were sacrificed every morning and every evening of every day at the temple for hundreds of years. These lambs were brought to the temple to be sacrificed for their sins. And what was the point of it all? Could the blood of a baby sheep bring forgiveness of sin? Is that what God required, like some kind of pagan God? No, that's not the case at all. Sin cannot be washed away by the blood of a created being. The point of the Jewish sacrificial system was to point to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. But so much senseless death, maybe you're thinking. Maybe all those animals didn't need to be sacrificed if nothing was really accomplished. In the Bible, we, human beings, are compared to sheep. And there's a reason that we are compared to sheep. Wikipedia describes sheep this way. It says, sheep are frequently thought of as unintelligent animals. Their flocking behavior and quickness to flee and panic can make shepherding a difficult endeavor for the uninitiated. We're slow, and God knows that. But God didn't make us slow. Sin has corrupted us, so much so that we hesitate to choose God over ourselves and over the idols of our hearts. So maybe making animal sacrifice a part of the culture for hundreds and hundreds of years was what people needed to understand the significance of what Jesus was going to do. One commentator offers four reasons for the sacrificial system. The first one is to turn Israel from sin. Animal sacrifice was actually a common practice in other nations of the ancient Near East. Um, But when God implemented it in Israel, its meaning was very different from the practices of other nations who were just basically trying to appease angry gods. And sadly, often the practices of these pagan nations get imported into our understanding of God's sacrificial system and even what Jesus came to do. And it goes something like this. Maybe, maybe you've felt this or you've heard this before. God is holy and, you, and perfect and you are not. Therefore, God is angry at you and hates you, so he has to kill you. But he's merciful. He'll let you bring an animal to him and have the animal killed instead of you. The problem with this view is that it not only distorts our view of the Jewish sacrificial system, it also distorts our view of what Jesus came to do. I believe the, the Bible speaks for itself, and so that's part of why I want to take the time to go through this this morning. The Israelite practice of sacrifice was very methodical, and part of that practice involved killing the animal in a quick and precise way. Their throat was quickly slit, and the blood of that animal, the life of that animal, was drained from its body. This was a real and tangible way for the people of Israel to see the devastating result of their sin. Death is the result of sin. The death of the animal is a physical symbol of what's really at stake, the life or the death of the whole nation. So in seeing the death of this animal, Israel is given the opportunity to think more seriously about sin and to repent from it. 
The second reason for the sacrificial system was to provide just payment for the hard cost of the debt of sin. The animal's death was not just a reminder of sin's consequences, it was also a symbolic substitute. Human beings ushered death and pain into the world through sin, and God has the right to bring consequence for that sin. Thankfully, God loves us and wants to provide salvation from that consequence. And so that animal's life was symbolically offered as a ransom payment. When we read about this in Leviticus, the Hebrew word used here is kipper. It literally means covered. Israel was covered by the, sacrifice, by the symbolic sacrifice of the animal. The third reason for the sacrificial system was to provide a way to cleanse and purify the community, specifically the temple, from the infectious nature of sin. The blood of the sacrificed animal was a symbol of the animal's life itself. And since this blood represents life, it was sprinkled around the temple as a way to cleanse the temple from death, the natural result of sin, and from defilement. And this leads us to the fourth reason. The sacrificial system was also to ensure God maintained his presence with his people. The temple where God dwells is cleansed, and so God's presence can remain with his people. Again, the sacrificial system does not mirror the sacrifices of other nations that were trying to appease their gods. They didn't just offer animals either. They offered human sacrifices, these pagan nations. But for the Jewish people, the animal, the substitute, is provided by God himself. For he is the one who provides everything for his people. His people are giving back to him what is already his. So the symbolism of animal sacrifice as laid out by Leviticus is a tangible expression of God's justice as well as his grace. And it reminded the Israelites of the seriousness of sin and the consequences that come from, both, from sin for both the individual and for the community. It also showed the Israelites that God wanted to stay in covenant relationship with them so that they could reflect and proclaim and advance his kingdom on earth. I think there's also a fifth reason for the sacrificial system, and that is to prepare Israel to receive the Messiah. God wanted Israel to fully understand what a sacrificial lamb meant so that they would fully understand what Jesus the Messiah was going to do. But it was still not an easy concept for, the, for them to get their heads around. Um, they believed the Messiah would be their earthly savior, that he was coming to free them from earthly oppression. And you can kind of see why that would be their perspective. The nation of Israel begins as Egyptian slaves, right? And throughout their history, it seems like they're constantly being attacked. They're exiled to Babylon for 70 years. However, when you look back and, and when you read about these accounts in the Old Testament, most of Israel's falls or defeats were the result of sin, of their disobedience. 
And so it seems like it would be so obvious to them they needed to be saved from their sin. We have the benefit of hindsight. As we read the Old Testament, we can see the whole picture, right? And, and they were just living it out. We as human beings are not as smart as we like to think we are. Jesus had to spell it out for everyone, even his disciples. And they didn't even understand until he appeared after the resurrection and explained it to them on the road to Emmaus, and then he appears to them again when they're eating. And so God is not only showing Israel through the sacrificial system that they needed to be saved from their sins, but he's also pointing to a permanent solution to the problem of sin. And so the concept of substitutionary death is woven into the Jewish culture. They didn't know that the Messiah would die a substitutionary death, like the animals they had sacrificed, but God is preparing them for this reality. I forgot to mention that lambs were not, were not just any kind of lamb, these lambs that were sacrificed. They were the firstborn males. They were spotless, without blemish. And these lambs were known for their white coats, which was seen as a symbol of purity and of cleanliness. And so you, we can kind of begin to see, right, why Jesus was called the Lamb of God. He too was stainless perfect and free from sin. So I want to look at what Jesus, the Lamb of God, did. We just looked at what the, sac- the sacrifice of a lamb in the Old Testament um, did in Old Testament Israel. But what did Jesus, the Lamb of God, do? I think we can safely say that he did almost exactly the same thing, except instead of doing it symbolically, Jesus did it for real, He did it permanently, and he did it for all time. Just as the sacrifice of the Old Testament lamb was to turn Israel away from sin, so too Jesus, the Lamb of God, was to turn Israel away from sin. A large part of Jesus' ministry on earth was about repentance. When Jesus began his preaching ministry, he began by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And that sounds very familiar, right? That's exactly what John the Baptist was saying. But the difference here is that John the Baptist was preparing Israel for the immediate arrival of the Messiah, and Jesus was preparing the people for the immediate arrival of his kingdom. What both were calling the people to do was to turn away from sin. Jesus again and again calls for repentance. When he heals individuals, we often see him saying, your sins are forgiven, or go and sin no more. And so his entire ministry involved a call to repentance. Secondly, just as the sacrifice of the Old Testament lamb was to provide just payment for the debt of sin, so too Jesus, the Lamb of God, was to provide payment for the debt of sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
1 Corinthians 7.23 says, You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves again of human beings. Our freedom was paid by the death of Jesus on the cross. Thirdly, just as the sacrifice of the Old Testament lamb was to cleanse and purify us from sin, so too Jesus, as the Lamb of God, was to cleanse and purify us from sin. In the Old Testament, the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled in the temple to cleanse the temple from defilement and from death. And Jesus came to cleanse and purify the new temple, which is us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a temple of God because the presence of God dwells within you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And Hebrews 9.13 and 14 says, The blood of goals and boat, sorry, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? And lastly, Romans 8.3 says, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Fourthly, what did the Lamb of God do? Just as the sacrifice of the Old Testament lamb was to ensure God maintained his presence with his people, so too Jesus, as the Lamb of God, maintained his presence with his people. And we've just talked about this. In the Old Testament, God dwelt with his people in the temple. This was his means of being with his people through strict laws, ritual, and a kind of separation where only the priests could actually be in the physical presence of God. Um, Israel knew, though, that because of the temple, God was with their nation, even if they, they couldn't go like the priest and physically be in God's presence. But this was just the beginning of God's plan for mankind. Hebrews 10, 1 through 22 says it better than I ever could. And this is a long passage, so bear with me. But it says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. 
With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire. You were not pleased with them, nor were they offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies about this. He says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Whoops. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, ensured God maintained his presence with his people. So what does this mean for us? Firstly, Jesus took our place. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be our sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's, it's so, so powerful. The second part of those two verses that I just read is just as important as the first because they explain the reason that he took our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
and by his wounds you have been healed. We needed to be healed from the disease of sin. Before you were a follower of Jesus, before you were a follower of Jesus, you were a slave to sin. It was your master, but now you have been healed. Not just so that you can be free to turn your life over to him, but so that, like Israel was meant to do, we can become his hands and his feet to the world. We are his ambassadors. Second Corinthians 5.20 says that we are his ambassadors. And verse 19 of Second Corinthians 5 says that God desires to reconcile the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And, and the only way that we are able to do that now is because we are victors over sin. Romans 6, 10, and 12 says, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too must count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And 1 John 3, 5, and 6 says, But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That last verse seems a bit harsh. It, it almost seems wrong at first glance, but what it's saying is that if we know him, excuse me, if we know him, if we live in him, in Christ, then we will learn from our mistakes as his followers. We won't continue to fall in the same way over and over again, because in knowing him, he teaches us how to move forward and he teaches us how to truly repent by showing us that we are victors over sin and that now we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And again, Jesus has done this so that we can fulfill what God's plan for Israel was. Which, which was to bring the kingdom of God to earth by being his ambassadors and by teaching this message of reconciliation. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been freed from sin and you have become a new creation, meaning now you are free to, to truly understand love. And because of what Jesus has done, we can love God and we can love others. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer living life for ourselves because we are free from the idols of our heart, which enslave and control our motives and our actions. First John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. When you truly understand that, when you truly start to grasp the love of God, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us, that none of us deserve to be rescued and yet we were because God so loved the world that he sent his son. When you truly get your head around that, 
then you want to love others just as sacrificially. And I know we're commanded to love others, but when we start to understand God's heart and he begins to change our heart, our hearts begin to look more like his and it becomes the most natural thing to love others. And we start to understand I really am a new creation. My motives have changed. My desires have changed. I'm not the self-centered person that I once was because that's what sin does to a person. A person in sin can't see past their own sin. They can't see past their own selfish desires and their own selfish motives. Life is about self-satisfaction and everything around me is to serve my interest and my goals and my pleasure. That's what sin does to us. Whereas when, when we surrender to Jesus and his way of doing things, that arrow does a 180. And now we're able to see, we're, we're, we're able to no longer be focused on ourselves, but on him and on others. And that's what the Lamb of God came to do. Just as John the Baptist proclaimed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Finally, what does this mean for us? We can go straight to the Father now in thought and in prayer. John 14, 6 says, this is Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The curtain has been torn in two. Jesus has truly made a way for us to come to the Father in prayer. And Hebrews 10, 19 says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have direct access to the God of the universe because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not a coincidence that Jesus died during the Passover. The Jewish people were saved from God's judgment because of the sacrificed lamb. And now Jesus has become that lamb for us. He truly is the Lamb of God. If you're like me, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this all before. In fact, you've probably heard it a dozen times. But I want to ask you this morning, how has it changed you? How has the truth that Jesus came as the Lamb of God changed your life for the better? Are you a better person now because you are a follower of Jesus? If your answer to any of these questions is, I haven't really changed, then something's wrong because the gospel is good news. It is reality. It has, Jesus has changed me and I've seen him change others. But, but being his follower is not a hobby. It's not something we only do on Sundays. Following Jesus requires total surrender just as Abraham didn't hold anything back, including his own son, but he completely surrendered himself to God. That is the only way that you and I are going to experience God. That's the only way that he is able to come into your life and to change your heart, your perspective, your thoughts, your motives, and your whole being. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now. 
And I want to ask you again, how has the truth that Jesus, the Lamb of, Jesus came as the Lamb of God, changed your life? Let's bow our heads. I want, to, I want us to just spend some time in reflection for a few minutes. Maybe you really can see a difference in who you used to be. You do see a big change. Um, Take a few minutes and thank him. Maybe you haven't seen a change at all. And there's something wrong with that because Jesus came to change lives. And I promise you, there won't be any change unless there is total surrender in your life. If you want someone to pray with you, Nathan and his team will be over on the left side of the stage. And I'd like the rest of us to stand and we're going to sing to the Lamb of God.